Australia is currently holding more than 3,000 people in immigration detention facilities. Around half of these people are being held offshore, either on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea or on the island of Nauru. Most of them are from developing countries, including Iran, Sri Lanka, Vietnam, China and Afghanistan. The group on Nauru includes 50 children. The Global Detention Project is a Geneva-based non-government organisation which was formed in 2014. It investigates the use of immigration detention as a response to global migration. I'm Robin Davies, the Associate Director of the Development Policy Centre, and I spoke with Michael Flynn, the Executive Director of the Global Detention Project, just before the launch of the project's new website and online database at the UN's Geneva headquarters. The launch was timed to coincide with a meeting of the Human Rights Council, and it was based on a case study of Australia and its neighbours. Michael starts by talking about the origins of the Global Detention Project and its plans for the future. Most of the discussion that follows is about Australia's detention policies and practices in a global context. We also touch at the end on the role of international organisations in this area. Michael, could, could you start just by giving us a broad overview of what the Global Detention Project is, where it came from, and mm -hmm. what its aims are? Mm -hmm. The Global Detention Project uh, really is the brainchild of students at the Graduate Institute. That's the Graduate Institute for International and Development Studies in Geneva. And uh, we were master's students. and. Um, one of the things we were working on was some of the reporting I had done, because my background is as an investigative journalist um, and a magazine editor, um, and working on stories on how the United States was involved in keeping people detained in other countries, and nobody knew about it. Nobody. Whereas the Australian case, everybody knows, everybody, the world knows what Australia is doing. No one knows what the United States is doing in this year, to this date, you know. It's really just hearsay, almost. Um, but I tracked down a few stories, and uh, you know, as far as uh, Guatemala, Ecuador, um, where you see the United States heavily involved in apprehension efforts, and then in certain cases paying for detention centers. In the case of Guatemala, uh, they were using dilapidated hotels to detain Indians who had uh, who had used Guatemala or Central America. Um, it's not clear exactly where they originally landed, but um, they had been apprehended in Mexico and then sent back to Guatemala for some reason, and the United States paid for the detention center for them. And um, this is back. Uh, this is just after. This is just after 9/11. Um, and um, the question, the obvious question, was why doesn't anybody know about this? Why is it that nobody? There was an article in the Miami Herald, page 20, one paragraph saying Indians languishing in. In, in detention center in Guatemala, but no idea about the United States' involvement in it. Um, and so this kind of lack of clarity, lack of transparency about a very important issue of the treatment of people in need, um, not only was it an important journalistic story, it was just an important thing to, I felt, to, to pursue. Um, and uh, the idea eventually, working with other students, um, eventually, was, let's make a tool of a database of all the detention centers we can find. Um, using any technique we can, whether it's phone calls, whether it's Freedom of Information Act requests, whether it's uh, systematic review of press reports, finding n 
any notice of a detention center anywhere in the world, which, which is really ambitious. <laughs> really ambitious, a small group of students looking at the whole world. So you, know, you, you prioritize certain regions in certain countries, and uh, the clear priorities originally were Europe, Australia, the United States. So the first work we initially did were those countries. Um, but increasingly, the issue uh, became, wow, what's happening is this effort to externalize detention practices. And so we need to be able to pay closer attention to transit countries and uh, also a lot of South-South migration and countries adopting policies that they are observing first world countries doing, developed countries doing, and then sort of adopting them whole, wholly for their, for their context. Um, and so you, we started seeing the spreading of detention regimes, a lot of them with similarities, like mandatory detention practices. Remains very rare, the kind of mandatory uh, detention that Australia has, but you see countries citing it, citing that case and saying this is what we should be doing. Um, and it's this kind of learning process. So in any case, the, that's the origin. The Global Detention Project became a tool of transparency. Uh, let's 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 document the spread of detention centers, and let's that was the original cause, um, the original point. But doing it systematically, finding coming up with the typology. Okay, we're going to find detention centers, but what, what kind of detention centers? What are we talking about? I mean, are we talking about um, airports? Are we talking about um, jails? Because we're finding them people being detained in all kinds of different situations. So just to use the word detention center or the word camp, as is very popular amongst some activists here in Europe to call them all camps, really you sort of don't see much, right? If you just use a, a very flat typology like that or word to, to describe this. So we came up with a typology. And so one of our goals became, let's look at countries through the types of facilities they use and determine why that mix of facilities is being used. And that st starts leading into issues of privatization. Why are they privatized? Tissues of who has custody of these people in these facilities? Is it a national security entity or is it a social welfare entity? Um, all of these things tell us something different about the country and the, and the social drivers and political drivers of the phenomenon of detention. So a lot of things start to become apparent right away when you do this. Um, you realize that, wow, it's only English language countries that have privatized detention centers. Only English language countries. Fully, I mean, there are some exceptions here and there, but it's only the three. It's it's Canada. It's, well, it is Canada, but it's mainly the United States, UK, and Australia. So that's that's interesting. I mean, that um, that raises the question about how policy gets transmitted across countries. And do you yes. think that's a factor that there is, I, I guess, easier uh, communication transmission of policy between English language speaking countries? I haven't studied the, tra the transmission of the privatization. I think that there's really going to be a strong um, connection to uh, countries or private companies, security companies having uh, a familiarity with a certain market, um, knowing it very well, having a comfort level, having a lobbying level that allows them to um, use certain situations to push privatization. And in the United States case, privatization comes about uh, because private prison entrepreneurs were exploit, exploiting the Cuban, the, the Cuban, the Cuban crisis in the in the early 1980s, and there was a need to quickly ramp up detention um, abilities. There was a perceived need, and so they said, "Hey, why don't you guys do this?" And so this private this private company started running hotels as detention centers. Um, but um, 
Yeah, so privatization is one of many issues that we, you're, you're like, so why have, we're trying to determine what has led one country to adopt this kind of set of policies. Where are they learning it? Or, where they, or who's imposing it? Um, broadly, you could say that's there. Are they learning it? It's either passive or it's active. There's someone either pushing them to do it or it's just learning and, and adopting. So a really interesting case with Australia in this regard. I mean, it really is at the center of this interesting story of the transmission of detention practices of mandatorily detaining people arriving by boat. Um, Canada looked at the Australian case to implement its policies after the Tampa case. Remember the Tampa case arrives in the port in Vancouver with uh, several hundred asylum seekers from Sri Lanka and they, and they eventually adopt a law. This created a lot of public hysteria. The more are going to come. What are we going to do? Well, let's do what Australia does. So they basically, based on the Australian case, put in place their own mandatory mass arrival um, detention practice. And then, interestingly enough, although they've never had a mass arrival, uh, New Zealand then a couple of years ago looked at the Canada case and said, if they can make it to Canada, they can make it here. So we better get ready. And so they adopt a mandatory detention policy. So the project starts with a focus on the United States. It broadens to take in other countries, particularly English-speaking countries with similar policies. You split off from the Graduate Institute, or graduated from it in a sense, in 2014, I understand, and you are now an, an independent non-government organisation. Association is, okay. the, is the word in, in Swiss law. But yes, that's effectively the history. Um, we begin operating in 2006 at the Graduate Institute. We go through various phases there where at one time we're attached to the Political Science Department, we later become attached to the Program for the Study of Global Migration. Anyhow, that lasted for a few years, and then the graduates who created this Maison de la Paix, and they, 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 they refurbished also a lot of their administrative processes. And it became, it became a little bit more challenging to do the kind of independent work we were doing in this new context. Um, but we had a very, uh, we had a very um, cordial separation. Um, the, uh, the, the number two person at the top, um, at the time, uh, Professor... Uh, uh, Lisa Prugel really saw the situation and encouraged a, 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 a cordial separation with the support of the Graduate Institute and our main donors to become an independent NGO. And that happens, uh, we become wholly independent in September of 2014. Michael, can you tell us a, a little bit about the uh, the launch which is coming up on the 14th of June uh, this this year? You're launching a new website, a new online Database, and there's going to be a particular focus on the case of Australia and its neighbours. So, can you tell yeah. us a little about that? So, um, we've had the, la- the the website, the new website, the new database available online since January. Um, it's just taken taken us a while to get around to, to doing a public launch because um, we're just busy, so busy. And an opportunity arose, even though we don't have ECOSOC status, so we can't at the UN yet because we're a new organisation. Um, a partner was able to secure a room so that we could do a launch at, at, the, at the Human Rights Council with the hope that we may draw some diplomats and people representing countries because this is one of the few venues where you can actually have that kind of draw. So uh, we thought it was a really good opportunity to, to use to, to sort of do this to public introduction to bring attention to this tool. Um, people who are tracking detention policies know the site already and have been using it, but it's an opportunity to maybe draw more awareness. From, from different groups. Uh, so 
Um, the partners that uh, we are working with on this have a keen interest in, in what's going on in Australia and also in the offshore sites, PNG and Nauru. Um, and so we thought that it would be a good opportunity to, to demonstrate what a database like the Global Detention Project database can tell us about a situation like Australia and its impact regionally. Um, because one of the things that comes out of the database is it really shows the uniqueness of different countries. Um, they stand out. And sometimes in small ways and sometimes in big ways, but sometimes in very obvious ways. But until you actually have something systematically where you're constantly trying to compare it to a peer group or to non-peer group countries, um, you begin to see patterns. And so, um, and there are a number of different things that come out in the Australia case in this regard, why it's really a sort of exemplary case for demonstrating the database. And one of these things is privatization. You, know, uh, you look, look, when you look across the entire world at privatization of immigration detention, Australia is, uh, is, is, is one of a very small number of cases that has, that has uh, fully privatized its entire immigration detention infrastructure, um, put it under management of private companies. Uh, UK follows closely behind and then the United States. Um, so this is quite interesting that it would be English language countries doing this, but also tells us something about maybe how the companies have familiarities and, and, uh, and subsidiaries in these different countries and um, just a knowledge of the political system. And maybe there's also a kind of view of capitalism in these countries that uh, is not shared necessarily um, in, say, mainland Europe where privatization is much more complicated. Um, and so this tells us something quite interesting about Australia. Uh, it, has, it, it shares a, a mentality with these other countries um, and uh, has really gone gung-ho. It's just embraced privatization completely. Um, what else do you see? Well, the, the issue of mandatorily detaining children who are arriving by boat. I mean, who else is doing that? And what's most striking about this, I think, is that the migratory pressures that Australia faces just don't compare to what you see in the United States or Europe today. They just, the, the numbers are staggeringly small and the response is staggeringly excessive. So that's the thing that really just stands out about Australia. Not only that, but, and this is something that's hard to, to capture in data, but the kind of rhetoric and dialogue and social hysteria perceived from abroad of what's going on is quite impressive. I'll give you a case in point. We use our Facebook page as a tool for publicizing new profiles that we publish. And we published a, a, a profile on Nauru a couple months ago. Now, what the Facebook lets you do is target countries and languages and interests um, in a way so that so your sponsored ad shows up in their reading list, right? Um, and we targeted Australia and uh, people interested in immigration, right? And um, this has never happened to us before, but um, we had hundreds of hate mails, mean-spirited comments. This has never happened with any, any other country. Yeah, you'd get the odd person coming in with real mean speech, but this was, I was standing there for three days next to the Facebook page deleting these things because I felt embarrassed. I felt embarrassed. I felt embarrassed for Australia. I felt embarrassed for our page. I've afterward gave thought to this. I thought we should have left that. We should have left that as a record. 
you know. But it seems to encourage, it, it was, by leaving it there for a little while, it seemed to encourage more people to go up and do it. So you're kind of encouraging people to go up and write hateful things about people arriving and why they deserved to be where they're at. Mm. And it was uh, hard to stomach. It was a real, it was a real, it, it confirmed something that you can already tell about uh, Australian society's willingness to have these extreme policies. There is, uh, there's clearly a, uh, a support and need for this to satisfy the demands of a concerned population. Mm. But again, you come back to this issue that, comparatively speaking, Australia's migration phenomenon is very, very, very mm. minor. Okay, so the focus on Australia um, is partly because it's an outlier, and therefore useful in terms of demonstrating the, the database. But I guess it, it sounds like it's also partly because of that almost policy contagion that you were talking about earlier. Outliers over time tend to attract other countries toward the same policy frameworks. Would that be a, a fair point? Well, I would say that outliers attract awareness. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean there, there have to be other, other factors in place to cause, I think, an adoption. Um, but outliers certainly draw attention of people who are fishing around for, for solutions to perceived crises. So um, Australia is, is not notorious for its offshore regime. And so that really, and the mandatory indefinite detention, these things, these things stick out. And um, so countries fishing around, they, 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 I, there is a process of looking on the shelf, what's available, and, you, and, you th and something's nice and shiny and seems to work, you do it. Um, so, yeah. And some people may have seen your narrative um, profile on Australia, uh, on your website, no. which has not been updated for, for some time. Yeah. The data have been updated. So I take it at the launch uh, there, there will be uh, a fully updated profile we're which will cover some of the developments. We're working uh, on it. Yeah. There's a lot to say since yeah. 2008. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So we're we're gonna it's not gonna be a full on study, but we're gonna have a, a more up to date um, profile putting Australia in comparative context, which is the real key goal uh, I think of the profiles um, at this stage. We're really moving towards more and more data collection and letting the data speak for speak for itself instead of producing really long narrative profiles, which we often do. They're very we have a small staff of three people, and um, we. You know, to, to write 30, 40 page profiles, which Australia easily merits, is just too time consuming. So, what is the, what is the main thing that we can do with the, what's, how does the, the narrative add to the data that you're collecting? And it's mainly highlighting differences. Yeah. And I, I do want to move on uh, in a moment to exactly that, how Australia um, figures in a comparative context. But, but um, what you say triggers a recollection that the first time I looked at your Site. I found the individual profiles fascinating and, and you know, um, deeply scholarly in a sense. A lot of research has gone into these. But I also found it hard to gain a sort of overview to, to, to get a sense of how one country related to, to others. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And, you know, at an extreme you might demand an index. Everybody has an index. And I, I suspect that is not going to be a helpful instrument in this case. But it does seem that you're moving towards um, an approach which does facilitate those kind of comparisons. Yeah, so. uh, the kind of tools that uh, have not yet been launched or developed but are in the works would provide people the ability to choose the kind of policy tool that they're interested in, mm -hmm. get a sense of how widespread it is, mm -hmm. um, and, and 
bring up multiple variables, you know, and trying to ask complex questions about what might be the pushers, the drivers of certain kinds of policies. So um, those tools are in the works. We're hoping those will be ready probably next year. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I think the data itself, uh, it's there. Uh, it's, you can go, to, it's like uh, one, one of the values of the Global Attention Project is you can go and look at just about any country you want and you're going to get some information about, uh, about, but the tools that give you the all the comparative work, you have to do a bit of it on your own. Mm -hmm. And the profiles, we do try to make an effort when there are real clear-cut cases to talk about and highlight how what's distinguishing this country from its neighbors. Um, I mean, we were, last year we published a profile on Germany, the first kind of pro profile of, it, of, it, of its kind, which is very complicated to do because the entire system rests on the level of the land. And so you need to basically do a profile on all 16, I think 16 lawn to do. It's not one country, it's 16 lawns that you need to profile to get a, to, to, to get a real clear sense of the country, which is very complicated. So you're asking information from people who aren't necessarily want to give it to you. Um, and, uh, and the federal government won't says that they don't have that information because the land is responsible. Um, Nevertheless, you, there's a lot you can draw uh, from that, and one of the things that stands out and we point out quite uh, quite uh, clearly in the profile is that it is, um, is is the fact that Germany is one of the few countries in Europe that uses prisons for immigration detention, um, and that's one of the that's one of the most important factors to take into account. Um, the other interesting factor is they did try to privatize one facility; they privatized, and then they never did it again, um, and. A lot of this may go back, speak to uh, the political culture, right? Um, the, the perception of the capitalist system that they have is quite different than than the English language countries, the main, uh, the large English language countries. So I think that's what explains that, you know. Um, All right. So let, let's talk about Australia in in context. I mean, I think many Australians thinking about these issues, whether they're on one side of the debate or the other. Um, often actually don't have a clear sense of where Australia's policies do, do sit uh, along the, the spectrum. For example, on offshore processing, I think most people would suspect that we're fairly unique in our use of offshore processing, but um, how do we stand on that? And that you'd be wrong. Um, it's interesting, I think most people in the world, not only in Australia, will think the same thing, that Australia is the... Is the uh, is the leader in this? Is the one? Is the innovator? But it was, it was really the United States when they when they were content when they you go back in the policy discussions and you look at the birth of the Pacific Solution and you see that uh, these guys were looking at the, what the United States was doing in the Caribbean and this becomes a real key factor in the discussions. They're doing this in the Caribbean. They're stopping these boats at sea. They're finding ways to send them elsewhere to not keep them there. Let's think about doing something like that. So you see. Some of the policymakers starting to use this, so the United States becomes the innovator of, in a way, um, and, and then and then Australia, but it, can, it remains very much under wraps in the United States. Nobody talks about it, um, uh, and it's interesting. I mean, people did at the time in the '80s. They were talking about what was happening in the Caribbean. They were talking about there were major landmark Supreme Court cases about the treatment of people being being interdicted. At sea, and with the and, and the treatment, so um, there was a tension, but it didn't receive this global not not notoriety that that Australia has um, with uh, with its offshore system, um, and 
as a result, it is kind of like the global bad guy, you know? Um, but then the, the comparative perspective that must be taken into account is what are the drivers of this? Um, one thing you have to recognize and everyone should recognize is that people arriving in an undocumented way, often in a very precarious way, um, have a security threat to themselves, very much, to their livelihoods. There's a problem with what may happen to them at sea. And you can't ignore that some, some kind of step should be taken to assist. But the, the, the next step to make, uh, to make statements saying that asylum seekers have no right if they're captured at sea to make an asylum claim in this country really makes Australia stand out quite, 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 uh, and again, in another way. Uh, and responding to a migration phenomenon that is remarkably small compared to other countries who have not adopted those kinds of policies. Uh, most European countries, for instance, although what's going on in Europe now raises a lot of questions about them looking at the Australian model to do to have arrangements with countries in Africa to prevent transmigration. Um, they're comparable to some of the things that Australia is doing. And another um, innovation, perhaps, is, is the deal that Australia has sealed with the government of Cambodia to, at least in theory, accept refugees from uh, Nauru and Manus. Not successful in practice, but again, is that kind of arrangement widely practiced at the well, moment? Well, the European Union arrangement with Turkey is, is, is a really important uh, uh, case to look at in this regard, right? I mean, exchanging numbers will send you I mean I know that uh, Australia wants to had and there's a previous agreement that failed wasn't it with Malaysia to sure. exchange numbers of people we'll send you this many and you can send us X number one for ten exactly these kinds of arrangements I mean it's what we see happening with Turkey right um, even though it's crazy Turkey is a country that does not provide in its law the kind of asylum regime that would be necessary for Europe to do this even in their own treaty um, issues, you know, they the, the they they have an obligation not to send people to countries where they won't receive appropriate hearing. So um, it's quite remarkable in this sense too. There, uh, Europe, like Australia, is just flouting international obligations in the face of everybody, as if this is just this is just no par for the course. This is what we do. They don't really matter. Um, so I, but the. Again, I always come back to this issue. What the, the kind of crisis, crisis, the kind of movement of people that we've seen has been so dramatic. And has it been so dramatic in the case of Australia? We were looking at figures of boat arrivals before you came this morning. And in 2013 was quite, quite, uh, there was a quite a large number of... We may have had about 10,000 people in that year. I can't speak to the, 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 the discourse and the level of discourse, although I do read some of the newspapers... Uh, from time to time when issues arise to, to get a sense of things. But, you know, even just... Here's another interesting comparative point, language. The alternatives to detention that Australia has, they call them detention. Detention in the community. So this tells you something. Because most countries are trying to feature their alternatives as their humane thing. But it seems that Australia is trying to say our alternatives are actually still meant to 
meant to not be very nice. And this is the deterrent. And we're going to call it detention. We're going to call it detention. And we're all, but they're also speaking to the political, the community of to 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 to, to voters, to the public. They're communicating by using this kind of language. And so the, the, it, it tells you a lot about the context these things are happening, right? That there's a real hard line. And it it's, it's, seems to be very widely um, accepted and embraced mm. in the Australian public. Now, speaking of community detainees, as they're termed in Australia, um, there are only some 600 at, at present. Yeah. Um, but yeah. they are unable to work. Um, is, is that a common policy across other countries? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of inability of people to uh, to um, to get work. I think uh, I think Russia is a very good case. Um, um, but in if once you have um, some kind of uh, release from detention, generally speaking, you have in most countries an ability to to be able to get some kind of work. But it may be it depends on your status. You know, if you're being released because you're you have an asylum claim accepted, then you're at a different status. Then you can go, but you can be redetained, and uh, and there are people who just have no ability to do anything. Um, and there's a lot of so-called redetention issues in in Europe, people who are being released but they don't have any status. Now I know the Global Detention Project has done some work, a lot of work, in fact, on children in detention. Um, Again, is this an area where Australia's very hardline policy is an outlier, or are there similar policies? The outlier for Australia is this um, mandatory detention of children arriving by boat. That's an outlier. I don't think that exists anywhere else. I don't think there's a single country that has that kind of... The detention of children itself, Australia's not an outlier, unfortunately. I think that... um, And is is it institutional detention in other cases, or does it tend to be community based? Well, I think that we wouldn't call most community-based solutions detention. And nor would we call the community-based solutions. We have a different name for these things, and which is a very important point to highlight. We have a typology, as I was telling you about earlier, and that typology is meant to, meant to, to pierce the problematic language used across the board for this issue what people call reception centers, what people call welcome centers, what people call whatever, right? So you need to develop a vocabulary that can be mainstreamed and used by actors to do comparative work. Because otherwise you really get caught and bogged down in language. Um, so um, in, in this particular instance, the, 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 the community detention issue is really important for us because we see that uh, that's unique. No one's calling alternative to detention community detention. Um, but in the case of children being kept in the community or other social welfare solutions, we generally don't call those solutions detention. Um, but it's not so easy to, to, to come up with a, um, a, a set of indicators that tells you when it's detention or not detention. Because it clearly could be. They could be at Lutheran, Lutheran services, social services in Seattle, and locked in a room. Well, what are we going to call that? It's an eight-year-old. So the eight-year-old, the eight-year-old by undocumented, apparently no ties to any adults, um, is 
you're not going to let that that child go in and out freely out of the out of the social welfare institution. It would be insane to do so. Also, because there could be a trafficker who's waiting to find a moment to 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 nab this person. It could always be a reality there. So there's a, uh, there's a real question of what we should call detention in this. We had a really weird thing. Uh, one of the first things we ever did as a global detention project was do a freedom of information request to the United States for all the detention centers that, uh, that were being operated at the time. And they sent us a list of 900 facilities, 900 facilities, right, um, for the fiscal year 2007. And uh, on that list, there were about 40 different social services that were for unaccompanied minors. And they included them on this list of detention centers, which was, we found quite striking. Why was Immigration and Customs Enforcement giving us a list of detention centers and including those in that list? And we highlighted it and we brought it up in some of our publications and, you know, and so did others. And uh, eventually they, they, they removed those from their sites of detention. But we called some of these people up. We just cold called, you know, one of these like Lutheran social services in Seattle. Do you guys know that you're in a list of detention centers? Like, oh, really? Why? That's crazy. We're not in a detention center. So, but I think there's hard work that needs still to be done to determine what we want to call, what custodial, situa- custodial situations we want to call detention and which one's not. Um, and uh, there's, that clarity does not exist today. So this whole, the campaign to end the detention of children is a complicated one because of this. Because the, the nature of detention or what we want to call deprivation of liberty in these cases has so many inherently problematic questions. Um, that go to the security of the child, or the well-being of the child, um, which is obviously the first consideration. Well, what, what, is, what is the best situation? And which ones do we determine to be carceral-like? So that becomes your question. What's carceral-like? Okay. What is carceral yeah, so. so, Michael, I'm interested in the role of some international organizations um, in this area working with governments like the government of Australia. I'm thinking of the International Organization for Migration, UNHCR in particular. Um, In a sense, they're engaged in these policies through the work that they do sometimes with funding from Australia or others in countries like Indonesia or Cambodia. For example, IOM agreed with the government of Australia to assist the people relocated to Cambodia. Um, have you looked at the extent to which international organisations are engaged in implementing these policies and, and what sort of safeguards they put in place? Yeah, well, I mean, have we looked into it? We've had to. As a matter of, as a matter of beginning to focus less in destination countries and more in transit situations and, 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 and immigration control in developing countries, uh, we almost always find uh, the involvement of international organizations on some level, um, the IOM being the most important one. But UNHCR finds itself in situations that are very uncomfortable for it, you know, um, playing a role inside ad hoc facilities and detention centers, doing asylum processing, you know, but nevertheless kind of engaged as one of many partners in a detention situation, which I'm sure is uncomfortable, you know, for them. The IOM, I don't think they're ever uncomfortable <laughs> about this. Uh, although, if you talk to the diplomats here, you, you know, they, they don't really want to talk about it. I had an interesting experience. We applied, I won't tell you who the, who the donor was that we applied to. We applied to a donor uh, several years ago for a grant, and they responded saying, look, we only do migration management. So detention doesn't have a role in that. So we're not interested in your proposal. And I really had to, I really had to 
contain myself, my, my, my reaction, because the migration management phenomena with IOM involvement, with other international organizations involved, um, as a part of this multi-stakeholder process, um, clearly has detention as a tool. And, uh, and uh, in that sense, IOM has become very, very, very engaged, importantly, with partners like the European Union, in the case of like Ukraine, um, heavily involved um, in the case of Indonesia you raise um, and in multiple other cases and so I think that there's a concern about IOM that stems from the fact that it's not a treaty based entity so UNHCR's involvement really is narrowly about tends to narrowly be about this processing asylum claims um, and providing some other services that are part of that come out of the treaty that emerge from what their mandate is but what's the IOM's mandate? They've adopted guidelines for the treatment of people. There's, there's some, but these are, it's like in the United States, guidelines on the, on the treatment of detainees is just guidelines. These are not something that's legally, that, that they can be held legally account to. Um, so I think it's a real concern, you know. I think that when you start uh, involving any kind of non-state actor to broaden the analysis of it in this issue, you start having odd questions about what is immigration detention? Um, if you've got a facility that's being operated in a country by, uh, by, by private contractors who are getting training from the IOM um, with little involvement of uh, the country itself in it, well, what is that? Because one, one definition of immigration detention, I think we should, is, is the fact that it's really about states. It's about state, a sovereign power, saying that we will hold somebody here because of the nature of crossing our border, right? So, um, so it's non-citizens, right? So immigration detention has to do with non-citizens. Um, but when you've got non-state actors who are involved in depriving people of their liberty, you, this, the question of citizenship becomes peripheral. And so you've got a new phenomenon. Um, I'm thinking of another case. Um, I, we get a little bit away from Australia here, but... Uh, um, there's a there's a there's a there's a small building on the tarmac um, in the international airport in Seoul, and uh, that tarmac that small building is where people who refused entry into South Korea have to sit for weeks, sometimes on end, to wait for a flight out, and it's operated purely by the by 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 a consortium of airlines. So this is detention by airlines on the tarmac at Seoul Airport. Is this is this immigration detention? These kinds of cases we see increasingly. Increasingly, the involvement of so many different actors that you you think to yourself, militia, militia running detention centers in parts of Libya that are no longer governed by by anything that you could call the state. The militia comes in and just continues to run the detention center. Um, is this immigration related detention? What is that exactly? Um, these kinds of these are these kinds of outlier cases really start to raise a lot of interesting questions about how we call immigration detention and so what is the applicable international standards. And I guess there's a, a related question about um, the management of, of detention by um, other sovereign parties, um, as we have in Nauru, for example. Yeah, yeah. The actual centres are run by private entities, um, but Australia tends to say, sure, we put people there, but the government of Nauru is responsible for their, for yeah. their welfare. So yeah. a further layer of, of complexity. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it, 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 Mauritania has a similar issue too. I don't know if you're familiar with the case of Mauritania. 
when they first blocked uh, the, the the migrant route from sub-Saharan Africa to, through nor- North Africa, there was a heavy effort to interdict migrants there, um, and they kept coming. They kept getting on boats further and further south along the coast, the Atlantic coast of Africa, all the way down to to, to Mar- Mauritania, because because the Spanish islands are right off the coast. And so they would go on boats to get to the Canary Islands. Um, and that would be their entry point into Europe. And so the, so the Spanish adopted uh, this model of um, having the Spanish uh, International Development Aid refurb- give money to refurbish um, a schoolhouse um, to hold these people interdicted in the seas there. Um, and keep them there, and uh, there are all kinds of conflicting claims for years about who has custody of them. <laughs> is it, are they in Spanish custody? Are they in Mar- Mauritania? One point says we don't have custody of these people. Um, so Australia is not unique in this. There are this is happening quite 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 a lot, um, and raising very disturbing questions about custodial authority because so much hinges on custodial authority, doesn't it? What are the rights that people can have under whose custody? Um, and if you can't determine that custody, then you're in limbo. So I just want to ask a, a final question on, on Australia's, I guess, comparative performance in relation to um, information transparency. So in one sense, it's, it's become notorious that, for example, whistleblowers um, face heavy penalties for releasing specific information on what they might consider to be human rights abuses. But on the other hand, uh, the Australian government makes quite detailed data freely available. Um, what's your take overall on the level of access to information that Australia provides? Well, I, I think that um, to give them their due, um, they provide extraordinarily good statistics on their mainland detention system. Um, and uh, much better than a lot of countries. Much, you know, I would say that the country that comes closest uh, to providing similar information is, um, is the UK. But and partly the UK, it's because they have such a strong prison oversight mechanism. Uh, Her Majesty's Inspector of Prisons has a... We've got a working paper we just published. You may, it's uh, by, by one of their lead inspectors talking about does inspection have an impact on immigration detention. They've played a real big role on, on helping transparency. Um, but they're a n- unique kind of entity a lot of countries don't have. Um, and so without them, we may not have all the same kinds of details uh, that we do today um, about detention statistics. Um, but Australia really provides a massive amount of data. data. And, you have, and why would they in other countries not? Why, don't you get the, why doesn't the, the United States provide... The United States provides some information, but nothing like that. Um, nothing that detailed. Um, why does Australia do it? And I think, you know, you may, it may come down to the same thing, that Australia is not too concerned about, in fact, wants people to know. It's very important for them, for the Australian government, to, to know that its public knows everything that they're doing because this is really publicly accepted. And this speaks to a real important question about immigration detention because, generally speaking, it's about detaining people and not charging them with a crime. There are, there are forms of immigration detention that are criminal, right, where it's criminal sanctions for coming in the country without papers. There's that form of immigration detention, but generally the administrative nature of it means that you're not charged with crime, so you're in prison. And that's, that strikes at the heart of a real important norm in contemporary liberal democracies, which is the right to, free, free to, uh, you know, right to liberty. So a lot of countries express 
their concerns about this by not putting data out, by not calling detention centers detention centers, by, by shielding their activities. We, we did a freedom of information request uh, the last couple of years to 30 different European countries in the European region and only a small handful responded to basic questions like where are your detention centers if they weren't publicly known? How many people are detained there? Do you detain asylum seekers? Less than half gave us full answers to these simple questions, right? In Australia, that's not a problem. You get all that stuff like that. So, again, you ask yourself the question, these other countries seem to have this discomfort on some level. They like to, they, they, they like to there's almost a schizophrenia. They like to be able to portray, we will get tough with you, so don't come. Um, but, ooh, but really, we don't call that detention. We call it something else. There are legal issues involved too, which 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 help feed this schizophrenia. Australia, there's no schizophrenia. There's there's we'll tell you what it is, and even when it's not detention, we'll we'll even call it detention. There's an embrace, and this is one of the things that's most striking about Australia. I think it's such it's such it seems to be from the outside such a societal embrace that there's no level of discomfort whatsoever, except for the offshore, which is where you see all of these whistleblower issues coming up. There is a desire to silence this, and um, which contrasts sharply with the kind of thing that you see going on in the mainland. Um, and um, that is that is much more a thing that we see. We haven't seen actually that kind of that kind of whistleblower. Like you're going to be prosecuted if you say something. I haven't seen that kind of case elsewhere. Um, so that's pretty pretty dramatic. Um, so, I want to ask you a question, which is, I guess, partly outside the mandate of the Global Detention Project, but but not completely. And it's a, a global question, not a, not a question specifically about Australia. But take the case of Australia as as a starting point. In the past, it has been the case that a very high percentage of um, asylum seekers have ultimately been found to be refugees, um, usually on appeal. Maybe half of them are found to be refugees um, through the normal processes, and then a, a, a large number, of, in addition to that, are found to be refugees on, on appeal. Um, is it possible to generalise much about what happens in, in other countries? Um, because, in a sense, you know, the Australian figures point to... I guess they make Australian policy seem even more extreme when you consider... The low recognition rate. Yeah, when you consider that in the end, um, at least up until around 2010, somewhere around 90% of people were being found to be bona fide refugees, people who had been in detention. Where's it, where's it gone to now? Uh, the... Well, it's no longer, in a sense, it's no longer applicable because mm. these people are no longer being processed by yeah. the Australian government. Yeah. They are parked in offshore yeah. centres. Yeah. Um, and you have to assume that if they were being processed domestically, the, the figures would be around the same. On appeal, maybe 80 or 90% uh -huh. of them would be regarded as refugees. So that throws an even harsher spotlight, I guess, on the policies of Australia, and the same would be true in other countries. So I'm interested in... Do you, have you started to look at this? Do you see this as a relevant... Uh, we've, seen, we've seen uh, the growth in the last um, few years of the adoption of expedited processes that seem to have as their unspoken agenda ensuring that the appeal process won't lead to uh, a re uh, eventual recognition. Um, 
and uh, the UK has had a very, very, very controversial process where you saw their, their, their recognition rates just drop dramatically when they adopt this, this particular expedited process. And uh, it's actually gone down. I think just as, as in the last, just since the end of last year, I think it's, they've had to wipe it away because get rid of it because it lost too many court cases. Um, but we've seen certainly uh, uh, in the United States is another really good case too where they have this expedited removal process where people are not being given the full appeals process to make their, their case. Um, I think that that is one of the mechanisms, policy mechanisms that is becoming quite common. Um, um, either through expedited policies where you're, whether it's somebody's in country or the biggest one is preventing them from landing up in the country so that the processing takes place elsewhere with the, with the caveat that they wouldn't, even if they were found to be refugees, wouldn't have the option to be resettled in the country that they were heading to. Um, so I think it's part of a much larger, you see this as part of a much larger pattern of states shying away from the requirements that they have under the Refugee Convention. You know, so um, in a sense, it's even harder to see the true recognition rate because they're not even getting to first base. Yeah, so. yeah. And that's where we left the discussion. Michael Flynn holds a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy from DePaul University in the United States and an MA and PhD in International Studies from the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. He previously worked as a project director at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C., as a project coordinator at the Graduate Institute's Program for the Study of Global Migration, and as an associate editor of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. His research has been supported by the Swiss Network for International Studies, the Geneva International Academic Network, the Pew International Journalism Program, and the Fund for Investigative Journalism. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.